Um, let's see. Oh, dude, you got the masks in the show notes there. Uh, was that you? That do you have masks at home? I my friend Kristen made us masks. Oh, nice. Yeah. So no do one you wear them when you, you work. I do wear them when I work. That's um, awesome. Yeah, my friend Kristen made it, and it's it's been it's been nice. But you know, like it's it just shows you how how bare assed in the wind we are out there. Oh yeah, man, for sure. And just the fact that some people give you a weird look, like you're uh, overreacting and stuff. Well, I shouldn't I shouldn't assume that, but up here it feels like that can be the case sometimes. So. I definitely am appreciative when I see people taking precautionary steps and stuff. So um, that's uh, that's definitely a thing. We've got N95, a couple N95 masks here uh, down with our tools and stuff. But I don't think you can buy masks right now in town. I looked on the Internet. So I'm just like getting a couple boxes of surgical masks. Also, for the quarantine, I'm getting... Um, some resistance bands for the door so I can get back in shape, you know, for fighting fascists and shit. Uh, mm-hmm. Just in case, you know, May 12th is the magical number when coronavirus is dead everywhere and we have to go outside and have summer bods. So, you know, uh, getting you know, that, I, yeah. I got to tell you, good cardio. Those Tommy T, those Tommy T things are good cardio. Oh, really? Penny and okay. I have been having fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, I haven't been so big on the cardio, although we do have a stationary bike here, and um, but definitely trying to get get back into the uh, the workout zone for sure. The Farmers League. The Farmers. Can they do it here? Cross and Dempsey tonight again. And Donovan has scored. Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA. The Farmers. Howdy, friends. It's Farmers League again. I am Mac, joined by my good pal and co-host, Chuck. Hey. Hey. So, we're out here. We're in the uh, the doldrums of, of soccer news, right? The bunker right now. Yeah, the we're just getting uh, uh, little quick type memos shoved under the door from our... our <laughs> from our, our low ranking uh, officers while the shelling continues above us. Uh, yep. <laughs> Reminders of what it was before and reminiscent of nostalgic times, but even before then. <laughs> That's how we're rocking it right now. You know what? But I do have something positive. I do have something positive the- to talk about. So I shared it with you in our chat, but uh, once again, the the sun god Tommy Thompson comes through. Uh, <laughs> right. When things seem bad, uh, the young fella provides. 
and his uh, YouTube skills channel he set up for his stay at home challenge, which I guess like hundreds of kids are participating in it, right? Where they're, you know, doing juggling skills and things like that and then sending it to Tommy Thompson's Twitter to like post Mm -hmm. up and he'll do the skill that they were just doing, right? Or like he'll challenge Mm -hmm. them to do a new skill. Well, he has an entire YouTube page set up and it's categorized into playlists like beginner, advanced, beginner juggling skills, advanced juggling skills. And it's really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like and I like the way he's filming it. So it's like he'll do the skill full speed, like, you know, like something pretty simple, like doing a doing a box, right, where you're just tapping the ball between your feet. Um, He'll do that it'll be like 10 seconds and then it'll just repeat again, but like in slow motion. So you can actually see what he's doing with his body and what he's doing with his feet. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that players are doing that. So how's your skills going? It sounded like you're actually participating in it. Uh, I am participating in it with my daughter. We're both doing like the beginner skill set together. Cause like I'm a, mm-hmm. you know, like a middle-aged scrub. So we might get drafted. Yeah, like it, yeah, you know what I mean? Like it could be, you know, I could be playing for Sporting Kansas City too as long as I, you know, do what Tommy instructs me, what what Sifu Tommy <laughs> is telling me to do. Right. That's it's never, great. <laughs> it's never too late. It's never too late. No, that's that's awesome. That that's uh that's um something that can be done during during these times. So How's the situation, uh, the COVID situation been down in Kansas City? I did catch some of uh, Juan Cousin, Juan Kamal's uh, FIFA 20 match he had, uh, where they had <laughs> nice. they had uh, they had a SKC versus RSL FIFA 20 stream uh, played by uh, Sporting Kansas City 2 defensive midfielder Juan Cousin. Uh, he's a, <laughs> nice. Man, he's good. He's good. I got to say, the kid's got some serious skill on the sticks. Uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> the joysticks. Oh, yeah, he's, sure. he's he's good. Uh, but uh, I don't know. As far as cases in the city, it's hard to tell. It's hard to expect because Kansas City is such a spread out place, you know? Um, yeah. So it, That's it's how diff- Omaha and Lincoln are, too. Yeah, it's really spread out, but I think given how many centers of retail are considered essential in Kansas city, I would expect it to be higher here than is being recorded from everything yeah. we've learned from Italy and Korea and, and, uh, in, in China. Um, it, you know, we're, it, it, we're, we're playing with fire, obviously. Um, Oh yeah, man. You know, uh, we didn't start the fire, but we're definitely spreading it around. That's for sure. Uh, and that's kind of how it is up here. People will get weird looks if you're wearing masks and stuff like that. But, you know, at the time of recording here in Nebraska, we've officially hit triple digits in terms of confirmed cases. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, it's going to be a wait and see moment because, you know, the president is touting Nebraska's response because they're like, well, look how, how low the cases are, which makes me think, well, just first of all, just wait. And second of all, um, just wait. So, yeah, well, I don't I know. Mean, it's not a super densely populated state, right? Like, 
Right. What's I mean? What's the the population of Omaha? Like it it's not pushing a million, is it? It is pushing a million. Well, it's it's larger than Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, the Omaha metro area. Let's see. Actually, it's half a million. So it's four hundred sixty six thousand for um the city proper. Let me see what the actual metro area says. Um. So the metro area is pushing a million. That's at nine hundred seventy-five thousand, and you know that includes Council Bluffs of uh, Iowa, and then you know the suburbs outside of Omaha and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean that area. You know there is a lot of people here, but that's probably the densest area. And once you start going west in Nebraska, it gets sparser and sparser. So. Yeah, Kansas City is about two million people. So, um, and it's I I will say this: um, it, it, there there is a, there is a a a boredom disease infecting the uh, property class of the city. <laughs> and oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they uh, they are just keep going out, and like no one can stop them. There's no enforcement. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you mean like going to like what events or just going shopping for the fun of it or. Yeah. Like kind of going shopping for the fun of it, not doing essential stuff. You know what I mean? Like, uh, huh. uh, it's really, it's fucking strange, man. Like, how do you tell uh, a class of people who have inherited no sense of danger? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) right, right. Like when you're talking about like, you know, especially like, you know, you know, uh, you know, suburban middle class whites or just middle class white people in general, you're talking about, you know, generational Mm -hmm. inherited wealth, you know, just like they've inherited like no sense of like danger or reality. And (laughs) how the fuck do you tell them don't do this because you'll die? And they're like, I can't die. I'm invincible. I was, well, you know, uh, our our government mixed with our economy has definitely conditioned them to that kind of behavior because, you know, anytime there's any kind of meaningful, what we think to be meaningful laws, there's so many exemptions carved out that people are like, well, naturally, I'm not included in that. And that's kind of how people's attitude is towards this as well. They're like, well, naturally, I can do this. I mean, I'm okay. But yeah, I, I don't know. That's kind of where we'll, that's what we'll see. Uh, if if that turned out to not be a very good look. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, Florida spring breakers, I think, are beginning to regret what they did. Same with people that went out and voted when we knew that the stuff was hitting pretty hard. So and I don't know what is going on with people that they think like May is like the magical end of a pandemic. Like, it seems like the whole world is just like, yeah, May. May is everyone knows that's when uh, that's when pandemics don't happen. That's like a. It's like, yeah, it's it's like they have like the the fucking um, Paris (laughs) Paris commune or like May. Yeah, the May 68 uprising, but for like defeating Mm -hmm. a pandemic. They're just like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Start from May Day to the end of the month. There's that's it. We make the rules now. The the this super bug has to go away. That's what it is. Right. After the, that, well, they, they, they can they, send it in the military. 
the, they say, well, people have been quarantining for 15 days. And it's like, yeah, quarantining with exemptions. They're still going out and working and doing stuff that interacts with other people. So that 15 days, I mean, to put a deadline on it and think that we've been adhering diligently enough to where that would be realistic is just laughable right now. So no, um, it, it's it, yeah. Like with exemptions, right. It kind of lends to the whole unreality of the situation where it's like, we say the word quarantine, but it's like, we're not doing an actual quarantine. We're just saying yeah. the word quarantine. Right. Uh, like, like it's like, we're applying like uh marketing, like it's marketing. We're marketing quarantine to ourselves yeah, uh, as as an idea, but then like not following through, <laughs> like it's not functionally exactly. quarantine. They think that minor inconvenience equals quarantine, so they're like, as long as I'm minorly inconvenienced, still, even if I do violate it in this way, look, hey, I'm still kind of staying in my room and stuff for the most part. But yeah, it's uh, we're gonna figure it out sooner or later. Here, it's kind of like when you know I was wearing rubber bands. Uh, from my orthodontist when I was a kid and stuff, and I would never wear the rubber bands. And, you know, it catches up to you, let's just say. But <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like it's like magical realism, the quarantine. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we're just title magical realism. <laughs> yeah, like we're we're doing like it's like we're doing a psyop to ourselves. Like mm-hmm. we're there's no because <laughs> the shit's not <laughs> happening. Right. Um, yeah, it's definitely been taking its toll up here. So, you know, we'll see we'll see what ends up happening. For the most part, I've gotten the majority of my work functions um to where I can do them from home, but I still end up having to go into the office almost daily, but I usually try to limit it to after everyone else is out of the office sort of thing or just go in, pick up something and that's it. So, yeah. Um but yeah, everybody's everybody's uh bracing for what's about to happen. So we'll see if we've done enough work and everything. It's uh it's going to be a, um let's just say worst case scenario is that everyone's going to be getting their money in the new economy from podcasting. <laughs> so um <laughs> Uh, it's going to be social distancing on social media and that's the new the new industry. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh it I'm I'm sure we're all excited for the day when the people who run Twitter and Facebook are the most powerful forces on earth. That is <laughs> right. Like like right now like uh, so much foreign policy is like set by like Boeing and shit. Uh, I would absolutely love for it to be set by like um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg after he gets out of like his tank full of preserving gelatin. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, they do have a lot of power, so it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it's wielded here. And you know, um, as long as we still have uh, internet, we'll we'll be along for the ride. I think. <laughs> so, yeah. You know. Sounds good to me. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, and uh, kind of in our quarantine here, we've got one of our, uh, I guess, our first quarantine interview, <laughs> right, Mac? Um, yeah, that we uh, recorded. I was, I was really excited to do this one. It's been kind of uh, in the in the making, um, but yeah, we we brought on uh, 
Andrew Downey, who is a mm-hmm. uh, journalist uh, who covers uh, who covers soccer, a uh, soccer journalist, I guess. Um, no relation to Robert Downey. Well, we didn't uh, ask yes. him. So. We did, yeah, we didn't ask him. Um, we didn't ask him. Um, but, you know, he lived in Brazil for 20 years and uh, wrote a, a really, really wonderful book on, uh, you know, Brazilian soccer player Socrates um, and uh, called Dr. Socrates, Socrates. I don't know. I don't I always I mm-hmm. think I'm over enunciating Socrates, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying to sound smart, but it was a really fun interview. Uh, we should definitely make it a rule to have more Scottish people on the show. It's just a very pleasant <laughs> accent to hear. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, it, it was great because, you know, we've talked a little bit about, um, about the player in the past here um, with our, our good friend, Alex Savinia. And um, it's just kind of cool to go back to that era of soccer, like the pre-internet world of soccer, which is just, I guess that's where my nostalgia of the game kind of goes to. So yeah, learning about Socrates is always something that I'm, you know, definitely all for. So, you know, this was, yeah. <laughs> this was a great opportunity here. Yeah, this is, this will be our second episode where uh, we kind of roll in on the seventies and eighties theme, right? Yeah. You know, getting, getting those retro vibes going that, you know, that's all we can do in the, this uh, modern day, because who knows if there's ever going to be sports again in the way that we recognized them in the past. But yeah, definitely, you know, if you're going to be thinking about the game and stuff, you might as well be going to the best of times. So um, yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should, you know, kind of just do some more, do some more classic stuff like that. I don't know. You feel like we watching a do, game? <laughs> right. Uh, a tale of two cities or something. <laughs> do like the best of times, the worst of times with soccer or something. We're, we're, we're going to get real, um, <laughs> real creative with it. I'm actually yeah. looking for Downey, uh, picture online, but I'm having a hard time finding it. So I guess he lucked out there. Uh, he's a, well, this, he's a yeah. international man of mystery. I guess, at least for right now, until we get better with Google. So, which we plan to do during this uh, during this time of internal reflection for many people out there. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, did you have anything else before we lead in on this interview, Mac? Uh, no. Uh, you know, just like everyone stay safe out there. If you can stay home, stay home and... If you're like me, one of the, uh, you know, someone who is drafted into the skeleton war, uh, you know, <laughs> you got drafted in that. Yeah, I got drafted in the skeleton war. It's it's called retail. Uh, and we and, uh, you know, so if, they, if you're like me out there, like, you know, try and stay as safe as possible. Uh, try and keep your head together, because I know that's I can tell you from personal experience, that's. Oh, it's man, really, yeah. it's really hard not to have a total psychological meltdown the moment you get to be by yourself, <laughs> like <taking laughs> yeah. your lunch or whatever. Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, stay strong, stay the, safe. You know, staring into the abyss has become one of my favorite hobbies re- of recent times. So, you know, um, if you catch yourself out there doing it, just know that we're uh, we're all going through it, and we'll get through it together. So, you know. Shout out to all the comrades out there. Be good to each other and um, mm-hmm. help each other. You know, help your neighbor. So, 
and um, and uh, the the DMs are open for the show, or and so are mine at on my Twitter profile, uh, which we plug at the end of every show. But so if yeah. you're if you're if you're like me, you're one of the retail people who are stuck out there, sort of has somehow become the front lines of a pandemic. You know, feel free to hit us up in in you know either my DMs or the or the uh, show's accounts DMs, and and we can talk. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and y'all know our handles and stuff. You can catch me at Shaggy Two Trope. You can catch Mac at Old Mac Done Did It, and us at League Farmers. Uh, we're we're there for the people, so um, stay strong out there, and we'd love to hear from you. To the magic of uh, international uh, Wi-Fi, <laughs> we are joined by a special guest from the UK today, Andrew Downey, journalist and author of Dr. Socrates. Andrew, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So uh, you wrote the book in, uh, it came out in 2017, right? That's right, 2017. So uh, what uh, what was it about Socrates that sort of uh, attracted you to him specifically to sort of uh, dedicate an entire book, which, you know, the, uh, what, uh, I've read some of it uh, so far last night and today, and it's uh, it's really, really wonderful and complicated character. Well, that's exactly it. I think you hit the nail right on the head. He was a complicated character. He was more than just a football player. Um, I really did not have an awful lot of interest in writing just a basic book about a football player who scored goals and you know made passes, and that was his life. Uh, Socrates was a much more... Uh, layered personality. He was involved um, in politics. He was involved in social activism. He was a, a doctor. He studied to, to he studied medicine while he was playing professional football. So he had all these different strands in his life that made him just a much more interesting character than your average football player. Yeah, definitely. The fact that he was a qualified doctor 
that's uh that's pretty unique i think in in the athletic world in general but maybe not um certainly it feels like it is in football but um but yeah that's interesting so uh was that kind of so we're, you talked about the inspiration there um when you were studying it what were some of the things that surprised you uh that you didn't know going into this um i think what surprised me was that you know everyone kind of had this opinion that Socrates was a a a, a well-known you know socialist that he he fought for social justice uh, and I think a lot of people believed that that was always the way he was, and really it wasn't. He came he came to that after you know a lot of thought and a lot of study, and I think that kind of that that was something that really was a bit surprising. It wasn't just a, a knee jerk. Yeah, I've always been a socialist all my life. It was, you know, uh, I've studied the, the I've studied the the way things are. I've studied politics. I've studied. Uh, all kinds of you know philosophy and, and this is you know after a lot of thought and a lot of 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 you know study this is this is the way that i think is best and and that was a that was kind of surprising it just kind of turned conventional wisdom on its head a little bit you know uh d- during that uh turn uh towards you know his sort of more socialist politics um what what one of the things that you talked about in the books is the sort of like birth of the uh corinthians democracy where uh, he kind of helped shape the club into this sort of um, uh, communal um, uh, voting structure, like, uh, you know, consensus and parliamentary structure that, uh, that you know, that ran the day-to-day of the club. Um, and uh, from, what, from what I saw in, in the book, in the section that you, uh, that you sent me, um, one of the more interesting things I thought was pointed out was like how uh, a lot of the players around him just sort of like went, along with it due to the strength of his personality or especially the older players and that there was like some real, I don't know. I'm reminded of the way the football press works now, right? Like the soccer press internationally works now that whenever something goes wrong, it's always sort of uh, blamed on a particular idea from the strongest personality and that uh, Socrates took a lot of heat for it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, first of all, you have to really explain a little bit, you know, to your listeners, what Democracia Corinthiana was, or what it was called Corinthians Democracy in English. And it was basically, it was Socrates led this movement where the players all got together with everyone else at the club and everyone had a vote on issues that concerned them. So, you know, the, the, the centre half and the captain had the same power, one man, one vote, as the, the, kit, the kit man and the tea lady and the club president. And they all voted on issues to do with the club. And then when it came to the team, the team would vote if, on issues that came to the team, whether they whether they should sign a new left back or a new centre forward, whether they should train the day before the game, or whether they should have you know, a day off to relax. Uh, so everyone had the same power, and it was a real democratic project. And it, this was really interesting, not just because it was given power to everyone at the club, but also because this was happening at a time in Brazil where Brazil was in at the tail end of a, a long and, and nasty right-wing dictatorship, military dictatorship. And so for 20 years almost, Brazil, many Brazilians hadn't had the opportunity to vote. There had just been repression. Uh, and so what 
Corinthians were doing at this point, what Socrates and his players were doing at this point, was they were kind of explaining these concepts of democracy, of freedom of speech, of everyone being heard uh, to people who did not have a lot of experience in these issues because of the dictatorship. And that was really fundamental. It really, it, it, as I say in the book, it, no one listened to the president when he was going to a summit, but everyone listened to Socrates when he was going to the World Cup because football was such a big thing in Brazil and because it was so important. It was uh, they were voices that, that people always wanted, always wanted to listen to, and they made those voices heard. Well, and one of the things that was kind of interesting to me was in that piece that you had sent, Socrates' brother said that it the idea initially kind of going back to what you had said about him not just saying, hey, I'm picking socialism as my thing. It all kind of stemmed in terms of um, the democracy at Corinthians uh, with the fact that he didn't want to be kind of isolated. Like the players, you know, usually had to kind of be locked down in a hotel for a couple nights before the games. And he was like, you know, I want to be with my family. I want to be able to drink beer, those kind of things. And instead of just saying, saying it outright, he was saying, well, we need to take more ownership in the decisions that we make overall and see which ones are really better for the team as a team, as a family. So I thought that that was pretty cool. I also thought that it was really cool that you almost got some Martin Luther King Jr. vibes in the in the dignity of labor in the sense that he was recognizing, you know, the laundry person that was giving them the kits and things like that and saying that they should be able to take in, you know, a stake in the team in that way, too. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the, the, what they call the concentration down here, it's, it's, it's when the players are get together you know, a day or two before the, before the game, they all go to the hotel and they were all, you know, they were basically holed up together, sequestered before the match. You know, it was this, you know, old antiquated thinking that players could not be trusted to be on their own before, before a game. The, the, the people in charge thought that the players would go out and they would drink and they would, you know, smoke and they would do whatever they, they did on a on a normal night. Mm-hmm. And this would affect right. the way they played. And uh, Socrates hated this because, you know, first of all, he was like a free spirit. He was a bohemian. And secondly, he just thought that it was it was that uh, it was this, you know, uh, paternalistic way of, of of operating and that football players should be treated like adults. Uh, so he really fought hard to to end this concentration, and this was one of his big fights. Of the 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 concentration, how far did that reach? Like it's it's a I, I don't know if it's still is it still very commonplace in Brazil, or was that pretty much slowly eradicated over time? No, it's still pretty much the case. There, there have been instances over the last few years when players or when teams, sorry, they abandoned the 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 concentration. Uh, they really did away with it, but it was more because the players were protesting and said, we won't do it for some kind of reason, or it was because the clubs had said, listen, we're struggling financially and we don't have enough money to do it right now. But it was all, it's always been brought back. It's never been totally eradicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the other things that was kind of interesting was that the coach at Corinthians at that time, um, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, I think it's Travaglini, uh, but he's uh, he was a guy that was kind of considered unconventional in terms of coaching. And the director of football at the time was like a sociologist, uh, Adelson Montero. Uh, so it seemed like the uh, conditions were favorable for someone to, you know, be a little bit more unorthodox in the sense that they're listening to players and giving them more responsibility than just playing the game. 
Yeah, I mean, the big uh, catalyst for all this was the arrival of Gilson uh, Montero Alves. He was the he came on as the the the, the director of football at the club, um, and he was, as you say, a social uh, a sociologist and a socialist, uh, and he really had those these you know uh, progressive ideas about what a club should be. And, you know, Socrates and, and Adioso, they hit it off quite quickly. And they were the two two of the main leaders of the whole Corinthians democracy. We, we had done an episode previously where we had, you know, just kind of dipped into Socrates and also talked a little bit about kind of the movements and how they are reflected in politics in Chile and a couple other places in Latin America and things like that. And one of the cool uh, things was seeing the jerseys for Corinthians that had the day that they were supposed to go vote, you know, really just kind of, I guess the way that they were kind of branding it and messaging it to the public was pretty amazing at that time to me. So, yeah, it was, it was, as I said, it was, it was a period where, you know, there was still a lot of repression and there was still a lot of, you know, state control over media. Um, so for a football team to go out and, and, and you know, transmit these messages. It was really quite revolutionary. And they were not saying, you know, go out and vote for the leftist candidate or go out and vote for the you know, the communist or the socialist. They were just saying, you know, you have the power to vote whoever you want to. Go out and use your vote intelligently. Read up, you know, have a look at who these people are, and then you decide. Uh, and that was really, you know, that was really revolutionary. And even today. You know, today it's what it's it's almost forty years later. It's still revolutionary. It's still never really been done on any any significant scale ever ever since. Yeah, this uh, this sort of uh, history from you know the nineteen sixties up into the nineteen eighties of of high profile South American players uh, sort of leveraging their power and their celebrity against you know repressive governments is one of those things that we've we've become pretty fascinated with on the show and use it as kind of like a reference point. So do you still, do you still follow Brazilian? Well, I mean, I guess given the times, uh, aside from the current moment, uh, are you still following Brazilian football or is there, what league do you uh, really kind of focus in, you know, your journalism on and just kind of your, your leisure time on? Yeah. Journalism, I still focus more on, more on Brazil. Yeah. A little bit on Argentina, but mostly Brazil and particularly the, the Brazilian national team. You know, this weekend was actually mm-hmm. going to be the first world cup qualifiers that Brazil and Argentina were going to play for Qatar 2022. Of course they were canceled because mm-hmm. of the whole coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, I, I pay sure. attention to Latin America and outside Latin America. I, I pay very cursory attention to the European leagues, except for Scotland. I mean, my big thing is, it's my it's my own, my own team. And people <laughs> right. say to me, "Who do you support in Brazil?" I say, "I support Hibs." Because I and where who do you support in Argentina? I support Hibs. Wherever I go, I support Hibs. That's my team. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. Well, you know, since you're saying that, you know, you're still kind of in tune with the the Brazilian game. What do you what do you think the relationship or have you been kind of looking at the relationship with the current administration and political situation? I mean, Bolsonaro just came out and was saying that this is just a little flu. I'm surprised that he's not, you know, forcing soccer players to play. But um, can you speak to that at all? Well, uh, I mean, the <laughs> Bolsonaro is, he's deranged, that's what he is. Um, <laughs> right. 
he's a, one of the very lone voices in Brazil, and in fact, anywhere in the world that's insisting that the coronavirus is not, uh, you know, is not a, a, a serious threat. He's called it a little flu. He's encouraging people to go to work and for, you know, businesses to open. Uh, and it's really become into a fight now in Brazil between, you know, the Bolsonaro, the top people in the Bolsonaro government, Bolsonaro and his sons, and everyone else. Uh, and thankfully, the, the you know the CBF, the Brazilian Football Confederation, you know they've they've stopped all soccer for for the immediate future, um, as have the state associations, uh, which are quite powerful in Brazil. They've stopped all the local leagues as well. So, you know, you know the, the people who run football, at least you know good sense has prevailed with them. So. Uh, you know. Yeah, even the street gangs have inf- uh, have imposed curfews down there. So, you know, you're, you're seeing real leadership from all sorts of people, except for some of the, you know, the folks at the top. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's tragic. That seems to be sort of the worldwide situation right now is that all the leadership seems to be coming from below while uh, the people actually installed in power don't really know what the hell to do. Yeah. Yeah. And. I, I guess uh, kind of with the politics of Brazil and football, I've I've seen players that have given a sort of some some more passive than others support for the current administration and things. And is it just because there's a shift in political ideology among Brazilian footballers? Or do you think it's literally just, well, once you come into money, you're going to go for the most uh, elitist or decadent interests and those might end up being with a brutal regime or some authoritarian or something? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I, I think because of the whole, you know, the, the importance of Corinthians democracy, because it was such a big deal and because people are still talking about it 40 years on, I think we tend to tend to see Brazilian football as, as more progressive than it actually is. It was a, it was a real uh, aberration. It was not something that was happening on a on a on a regular basis. It wasn't happening elsewhere in, in in other clubs. It hasn't happened really anywhere else. So you know, I think you know, footballers, you know, coming out with right wing statements and supporting for and their support for Bolsonaro. I, I think you're seeing. I think you're seeing the, that that's more the norm than 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 players coming out and supporting. You know, you know the other side. Sadly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, uh, we, you know, and are trying to think of the way to phrase this to kind of continue that thought. Um, I think there's, I think the difficulty comes for a lot of people, and this is me kind of like echoing myself, I guess, in the episode that's coming out. But you know, we tend to see this sort of like style of play, you know, uh, that you know sort of typifies Brazilian soccer, right? You know, the 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 freedom, the spontaneity, uh, the movement, right? the rhythm to it. And and I think we always kind of want to implant that onto some sort of um, whole holistic ideal or holistic approach to life rather than just sort of um, a, a typified playing style or just someone's individual expression. Yeah. I mean, Brazil, Brazil has this reputation as, 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 you know, this freewheeling, you know, uh, joyous, happy footballing Samba. style. Yeah, samba. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's it, it's it's been the way people have seen Brazilian football for a long time, and with good reason. You know, the the fifty eight and sixty two teams, you know, you know, played in played in a, a very you know progressive open play. Seven nineteen seventy in particular was a team that 
that is well known throughout the world for you know arguably the greatest team of all time and they played this attacking attacking football uh even 82 and 86 the teams where socrates played for the team that socrates played for uh, in the 82 and 86 world cup you had two great brazilian teams who you know never won the tournament but are still very very fondly remembered uh, and that's changed a little bit you know from the 1990 on 1994 Brazil won the World Cup but with it with a team that was you know a lot more defensive and a lot more rugged and a lot more stolid than than any of the Dunga teams style yeah <laughs> that's and, and you know football has just changed I mean football you know in large parts because of globalization you have you know players from Africa and you have players from South America who are now living in Europe and playing for European teams and that's really that's taken you know that kind of that kind of happy progressive you know artistic you know technically elite or technically uh advanced football to to europe and now europeans play you know their football is every bit as as, as skillful and, and and as beautiful as as brazil ever played i think that the other thing is that is brazil have kind of lacked a little bit they've been a little bit behind the curve in in turning to uh, tactically i mean tactically and also in terms of of uh physicality brazil have been a little bit behind the curve um they now have a good coach Tichi, who's a little bit more savvy you know a little bit more open i mean brazil has never had a foreign coach uh at the national team and most other national teams at this point have had a foreigner in charge uh i mean it's starting starting to change a little bit brazil's been you know, maybe a little bit more open, particularly in the last year, because you've had Jorge Jesus, who was the Portuguese coach at Flamengo, and he took Flamengo to the the Brazilian First Division and the Copa Libertadores last year. It was the first time they'd won the Libertadores since 1981. And Flamengo really ran away with all these tournaments last year. They were, you know, far and away the best team in Brazil. And I think that that opened a lot of people's eyes to the need for you know to open up open up a little bit and and you know invite more foreigners in invite more coaches in, invite more you know overseas expertise in and you've seen you know three or four or five foreign coaches coming to brazil this season um it's too early to say whether this trend will continue and what kind of effect it will have but the just that one coach alone jorge jesus at, Fl at flamengo that has really made a, a you know a big difference in brazil yeah, uh, the Brazilian women's team uh, brought on uh, Pia Sundag, you know, former U.S. women's team coach, and she's a uh, Swedish, and she's doing quite a bit of work that, you know, because, uh, you know, the Brazilian women's team had always been kind of an underperformer on the, in the, uh, I guess, in the sort of World Cup or international game, but they seem to be like getting like a lot of steam and, and developing like a sort of like more um, holistic style defensively and offensively. Yeah, it's a it's a very good point. You know, you pointing to the women's team. Yeah, you know, you're right. You know, Pia's come in and she's been a, a breath of fresh air there, and the results have been the results have been pretty good since she came in, and she seems to be she seems to be uh, you know very popular, and you know the the players seem to like her, and you know let's hope that you know this is the this is a, a this this really pushes the Brazilian women's team forward, as you say, they've been underperforming, especially. You know, in terms of World Cups and Olympics in recent years, so you know, hopefully she'll push them on to 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 win that big title that they that, that eludes them so far. I'm hoping so. I, there's a lot of Brazilian women's players that I pay attention to, like in uh, you know, in different clubs, like here in the states or in Italy and stuff, like uh, Debinha or Andressa Alves, and 
they're really, really talented. And I think they, they people like that kind of like deserve like a, the type of program to really compete. Yeah. So, um, Andrew, real quick here, uh, probably got time for one last question during these events and during kind of the pandemic quarantine, what has been your favorite soccer related thing to do now that we can't actually watch live football? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I am actually uh, for a long time or for a, almost a year now, I have been working on a book about the 1970 world cup. It's an oral history. Um, you guys are probably mm. too young to remember it, but 1970 was <laughs> one of the most iconic World Cups of all time. It was the first to be uh, broadcast live in color. Uh, it was mm-hmm. the World Cup with Pele at his, at his best. It was the World Cup of the great Brazilian team that, as I said, mm-hmm. many people believe to be the greatest team of all time. And... You know, there's a real magic about that World Cup, and I've been interviewing as many players as I possibly can to try and put together this book in time for the 50th anniversary, which will be in the summer. So that's been taking up a lot of my time, uh, awesome. wise over the last over the last few months, and will take up more of my time as we go. Uh, as I sit here at <laughs> home, you know, unable to go out, I'm still looking at the games and you know putting together interviews and and researching it online. Awesome. Well, you're definitely going to have to let us know when that comes out. And, you know, we're going to have to do a plug for that as well. Um, sure. Well, you know, de- definitely. Uh, Mac, did you have anything else you wanted to ask uh, real quick here? Uh, oh, no, I was actually going to ask, are you working on another book? That was like my final question. And that's that's been answered. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> do you have a title for it there, Andrew? It's called The Greatest Show on Earth, Mexico, 1970. Ooh. Awesome. Excellent. Well, you heard that audience. We're definitely going to uh, be reading that, doing a reading series, and uh, we'll, we'll have more when it comes out here. Um, did you have anything else that you'd like to plug, Andrew, for the show or where people can find you or your work? Um, not really. I mean, I'm on Twitter, uh, Adoni Brazil. Uh, that's it, really. Um, there's an in- I know there's an Instagram about my, my Socrates book as well, where we're there's lots of great pictures from the book and quotes from the book and more information about Socrates. And that Instagram is Dr. Socrates Biography. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the show, Andrew. You have a great day. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Sempre há tempo para amar Quando um bem você achar E então você vai ver Você vai ver e vai voltar E então você vai ver Você vai ver e vai voltar
How's work been? Has it been terrifying? <laughs> it's been weird, man. It's been so like you shouldn't be working, man. Honestly, <laughs> this no, is gonna get so scary. No, we shouldn't. And it, it's it's fucking wild. Like I, I, you know, I keep harping on how surreal it is, but it's it's like. Having like, you know, I, I talked about this with Matthew and Brendan on that last episode, but like mm-hmm. just like constantly having having it being demonstrated to you. Like personally. That you exist on the bubble of disposable people and you can just get enveloped into it at any time. Oh, absolutely, man. I like mean... that's the way it is. Like it, it's there's there's tons of people who just, you know, tons of tons of different people in in this country or throughout the world that are just like locked directly into the disposable person category, right? Like sure. their entire lives. And it, it's when you like live just on the edge of that bubble, like I do, you know, like as a, mm-hmm. as a, I guess a, a working class white person, right. Right. Um, you know, who's like, you know, has some education and, things like that. Like, you know, you live on that bubble, but then to have it sort of like move out to you anytime they see it fit. Like this isn't the first time this has happened to me in my life, but this time it's really just like the stakes are so much higher than it was, you know, like, like being broke or destroyed, like, you know, like you can, you know, if you're lucky, you can ask people for help or, you know, Mm -hmm. you can work out some sort of deal or you can organize or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But in this situation, there's just not really shit you can do. Like as more and more unemployment claims come in, the level of organizing you can do in a workplace like this, like just diminishes. Right. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, man. And that's that's the shitty thing. It's like, I mean, the fact that you even have to risk it without insurance and stuff. It's like even if you do survive it's it's going to be a shitty a shitty situation unless there's a total revamp of all of our societal foundations and stuff like that. So yeah, it's uh it's terrifying to think and and it's like there's solidarity with, you know, the billions of people that were on lockdown in India or whatever that live day to day but can't go anywhere. Um same in China and stuff, but yeah, that's it always feels like it's to further the cause and so much could have been prevented if, if we actually recognize that the cause is bullshit. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it, it's, yeah. it really shows you just like the irrationality of, you know, sort of uh, the sort of capitalism and like, you know, sort of the colonial capitalist state, right? Like you just don't really, yep. there's no rationality to this. There's no rationality to keeping a fucking County jail open. Right. You know what I mean? And, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there's some lady on Twitter from my high school. I, I don't know if she lives in New York, but she just like spontaneously said, no, New York is not the cause of this. And I don't know if it was because conservative kids from our high school were trying to draw the link or something because of the amount of cases. But I'm like, look, obviously, New York wouldn't be the reason, the direct reason why I have you know, caught it here in Nebraska, but wall street is in New York. Am I wrong? I mean, the fact that all of this stuff was slow walked and dragged out 
was because of corporate interest or the interest in not hurting the market or any of those kind of things or lobbyists for years, you know, railing against uh, Medicare for all and that kind of shit. So, yeah, New York, de- New York mindset definitely plays a role in why the crisis is magnified to the scope that it will be all across the U.S., yeah, and I mean, it's not that like, <laughs> it's not like the people in the city, right? Like, it's not like people who who live day to day in that city. It's right. The, it's the 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 cultural and financial center that it is. Yeah, um, you know it, which is you know kind of like how all of us live, right? Like, we're yep. supposed to. It, it's part of the reason why I think that's sort of like you know we we do this in sports a lot, right? Where it's like the we delineate things by like geography by like city right by like city center Mm. um you know and and i think in some ways that that thinking kind of like uh uh obscures what we're talking about right like Mm -hmm. new New york city is not a problem the the problem is that the centers that are just the the core of this fucking rot that is killing us all is there you know, like it, it is, yeah. it is the, it is one of the four or five centers of the capitalist universe. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, yeah. you know, Berlin and then, you know, London, uh, Tokyo, like after that, I mm-hmm. guess. But those, those are the places where it's like the, the decisions about who lives and who dies are, are being made in like little graphs, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh it's crazy. Everyone's gonna be uh forced back to work and they're gonna say, Well, I could die and I'm and you know, their bosses are gonna say, Well, that's pretty much it. So yeah, that's the plan. Get to it. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, so. the, and that I was talking about this with a friend of mine on the phone last night. Like the plan is literally like <laughs> fuck you. The plan is fuck you. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's not uh we're 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 not gonna get the authoritarian starship trooper economy that people are foreseeing <laughs> what we're gonna get is right. just the way shit was last month plus uh just poor people getting sick yeah and, and being Crippling punished for austerity. getting sick yeah like yeah. that's what we're gonna get which is uh in some ways, I'd almost prefer some sort of military regime to fight against than just <laughs> than right. just the sort of like uh, slow grinding uh, on top of a pandemic that apparently we're just not going to get rid of, that we're not going to do anything about. Um, yeah, dude. Um, I, I've made sure that I'm okay in the event that I get uh, COVID-19, I have about a half ounce of mushrooms and I'm just going to eat all of them right before I die. You know, (laughs) as I'm I'm struggling to breathe, then I'm going to be like, it's time and I'm going to eat them all. And I'm just going to enjoy the ride out and be listening to like let me ride or some shit you know what everybody's saying <laughs> let me ride hell yeah what everybody's
insane. That's how I'm going out. I'm already planning my affairs and shit. So, oh man. All right. Well, maybe we should uh, get into an episode here or something. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like we could probably include all of that into an episode. <laughs> oh, well, oh, for sure, for sure. Okay. Well, we could do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, do you want me to? You want me to count us in? Yeah, for sure. Okay. 